Greetings and welcome to The Pure Report. I'm your host, Rob Ludeman, and it is time to bring the orange once again with two of my favorite guests in the company and maybe on the planet uh, itself, Kyle Keller and Andrew Miller, frequent friends of the program. Gentlemen, it's great to have you back. Kyle, what's going on in your world? Uh, everything's awesome. I had the best travel week of my life. It was deplorable. I had multiple flights canceled, never got to my end game, and I had internet shut down on me, and it's great to be here. And this is going to be the highlight and in in the end of a great week. So thanks for having me. It is funny that despite all the interesting conditions we have going out there with health concerns and all that, that travel hasn't really changed. The more it uh, changes, the more it stays the same. Canceled flights are still canceled flights. Uh, how'd you navigate that one? Did you finally get home by some other method? I never let, I could never leave home. You didn't it even was, go. Direct flights were canceled. My new flights were canceled. My next day flights were canceled and uh, internet service was shut down. How power to the house got shut down. It was crazy. It was a week of infrastructure challenges, but we made it work. We got through it. All right. All right. Well, maybe there's an infrastructure bill that will pass that can uh, throw some money to solve those things for you, you know, which is, ah, you know, let's not get political here. Andrew Miller, welcome back. Thank you for joining at late notice, but I thought your, your voice and your thoughts would be interesting for this new segment that we're doing where we're kind of going to look at some of the latest news and dissect it and get your guys' thoughts on it. But what is happening in your world, in your neck of the woods? I mean, I, I was blushing a minute ago with that kind of introduction, but I'm, I'm not blushing anymore. And since you can't see it on a podcast anyway, it's all the same. It's been a fun week. It's just this fun mix of customer discussions, of partner training. Uh, there's been a couple of webinars with either some some folks that people will know here, Eugene McGrath, Brian Farrar, and your team. So it's it's been a little bit of a crystallization of kind of the PTS week, which is a little bit of everything. And uh, it's fun conversations. Yeah, that's kind of your roles. There's never really a dull moment in in the world of of, uh, of the PTS roles that you have here. Your your internal, your partners, your external. You're doing webinars. We do appreciate mm -hmm. you. We appreciate all that you contribute and uh, that you have such versatile skill sets and knowledge bases. Which is why we're kind of going to dive into the news. So here's the game, fellas. Is I kind of sifted through news in the past couple of weeks and pulled out things that I sort of thought were interesting. And you know, if you if you just start signing up for one newsletter, all of a sudden you get 25 of them. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that happens, but <laughs> um, so be it. And so, you know, that's part of the every day's exercise in the morning is going and clearing out all those things. But now I was starting to pull out and look at some interesting articles. So let's do that. And the format for you listeners, we're just going to pull up three or four different interesting things and really look at just riffing on those. And they are all really related to um, data management or data management challenges and just kind of things in the news. So the first one that jumped out at me that I thought was really interesting, and maybe this is sort of a looking back and, and looking forward, but there was a Scientific American article that was entitled DNA, the ultimate data storage solution, and effectively how there is research and scientists are looking at how to store and use DNA, archiving info and in DNA molecules, because they lend themselves really nicely um, to storing a ton of data. Mr. Keller, your thoughts on this? You, you are a diehard storage person. You've been in and around the industry for a long time. Um, does this seem like something that's, that's feasible, tangible, given what you've seen with the evolution of storage media over time, or does this seem kind of far-fetched? Uh, so I read the article, and I think the first time I'd heard about this was in the 2012 timeframe. It was a it was an idea and a thought. It was like a paper to to go see it. Um, and then I was kind of reviewing the article you were sharing, and 
coming up with an adaptive DNA storage codex that translates data files from binary into you know and zeros uh, into things that you know the four the four letter uh, code biology understands to yeah. literally direct quote it. Uh, it's it's impressive. The thing that comes to mind, and and I I always thought of this as cool. We can, and maybe I could read something there too, because I think it's extremely relevant. Uh, let's see. Um, consider this humanity will generate an estimated 33 zettabytes of data by 2025. That's 3.3 followed by 22 zeros and DNA storage can squeeze all of that into a ping pong ball with room to spare. Yeah. So the density is great. The, the, the big idea, and I, and Andrew, I'd love to get your thought on this. The first thing I think of is the interface. Great. We can get that into that form factor, but how do we get it there? What's the interface to get the data there? And, and I think that was one of the big ideas is it may be a good archive platform. Well, we don't think this is, at least with what we know today, is going to be a primary storage device. But yeah, well, you don't want it to turn into the Roach Motel of storage, of archiving, right? The old, yeah. uh, you know, I think a prior company I worked for created one of those. It was a good archive for putting data in. Oh, you want to get it out? No, no, that's the Roach Motel. Yeah, it just, it just goes there to live and die. Andrew, what do you think? Couple, couple of thoughts. I mean, this was this was fun to read, frankly, because I don't think I heard about this back in 2012, Kyle. I'll just be real. I'm going to give that one to you. But what it, it did make me think of first is sequencing the human genome, okay. and some numbers I've seen over time about you know how that has dramatically dropped, like from you know hundreds of millions down to thousands, down to hundreds of dollars, you know, kind of thing. It's like Moore's law applied to some of that, and even how it's going to extrapolate out further. So if we can sequence the human genome, which is around DNA stuff. Well, then it starts to think, well, maybe we can do the, we can start to flip that around. And there's so much data there that we had to figure out how to almost read only the, the genome is read only, if you will, except if we do like stuff like CRISPR, et cetera. But then if we think, OK, so if we then go and want to go and write into that, what does that look like? And this is a little bit more of the article for folks that are reading along with this kind of thing that you, you have to think about, OK, you, a binary to DNA translation layer. Um, and I'm not going to get this right, but you have binary, which is zero and one. You have hex, you know, hex or hexadecimal. But the DNA, like you mentioned, Kyle, is four things. And you're going to have to translate from binary to that, to ACGT. And then you even have to do some level of error checking and correction. And that makes me think of some of the challenges we deal with on Flash, where you write stuff and it may not get written. And then you think about things like read disturb. And it feels like there's shades here of different formats. The last thought that came into my mind is just around what happens if you have that kind of density. Um, I was going to use the ping pong call code, but we didn't totally coordinate all that. But I'm going to bring it back because if you dramatically decrease the cost or dramatically increase the density of data, that um, exponentially, logarithmically, whatever the right fancy term there is, you know, kind of thing. What does that mean? Will, how much data will we actually be storing in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years? And then how much will the data production, the production of data actually speed up? Because it's so cheap and easy to store it even more than it is today. So that's what I got. Back to you, Rob, Kyle. Well, no, and it's probably analogous to some of the breakthroughs that have that have happened over time, right? I mean, I feel like, you know, and I come from server land, so I tend to go back to those types of things with you know, microprocessor development, right? Where it was like, well, we're never going to get past one micrometer or, you know, all these things. And then <laughs> boom, there's some kind of, there's some kind of breakthrough. And then we're, you know, we're pushing down the boundaries of where a transistor is, you know, the, you take a human hair and you slice it 10,000 times and it's the size of one of those slices, right? So this may be that same type of, you know, revolutionary breakthrough or move forward. 
but you make a really good point around the software, right? I mean, you know, what is the performance then? Is it an emulation type of thing that is built? And really this comes back to, and, 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 and you know, it dovetails with the podcast we did, did last week on enterprise for all and how Pure's, you know, software centric design is really the thing that allows us to be stateless and do great things with evergreen. And we're democratizing data up and down the stack, regardless of what features you want, you can get it everywhere. So I don't know, those are kind of my outload thoughts for that. Kyle, you look like you got one more thing. No, just the last thought was, you know, I say, and the only reason I knew that Andrew, it was like 2012 because it was early days. I joked about, you know, Hey, maybe, cause I, that's one of the things I talked about, Rob was the, the software defined approach and Hey, you know, today, back then it was SSD. We knew we yeah. were going to NVMe and we were going to go, direct flash and other things like that. And we've seen, you know, the change in mediums over time when now we're doing things like QLC and a cost optimized flash or AC platform. And we've made those changes. And the, the running joke was we don't know what the future is other than change. And when those innovations come along, you're going to want to be partnered with somebody who's taking advantage of that kind of stuff. So my running joke initially was always, Hey, it might be human DNA in the future or whatever, not human DNA, but DNA in the future and we'll see where it lands. So yeah, pretty, pretty interesting, but I love reading the article. Andrew, last thought. We never talk futures, obviously, especially in a public <laughs> format. But I think you heard it here first that in 2027, the pure, pure storage will introduce an array shaped like a ping pong ball. I think so. that's what I just got out of this. So, you know. All right. I better get go work on the branding for that one since uh, that's, that's going to be the, the marketing task is to come up with what to call the ping pong ball size storage. Well, awesome. Thanks, gents. Um, really interesting insights on that one. And again, if you want to, if you're listening out there and want to go check it out, just do a quick search on Scientific America and DNA storage, and you should be able to get that to pop up. Well, I don't think, Andrew and Kyle, it would be a podcast if we didn't talk about one of our favorite subjects that is always in the news. And it's interesting because the article says, well, it seems like ransomware makes headlines month on month. I, I would go more week on week or day by day, right, Andrew? And you, you track this really closely and have some nice talk tracks and Talk to lots of folks around this, but this one jumped out. It wasn't just your average ransomware type of article. It, it was entitled Black Hat uh, Enterprise Players Face One-Two Punch Extortion in Ransomware Attacks. And certainly ransomware is, is all around extortion. But as I sort of floated through the article, there was this concept around big game hunting. And they had an expert on talking about, you know, cyber attackers aren't going after just a target system, there are actually multiple threat actors that are plowing through and trying to get through initial access points and then gaining access to as many systems as possible in the back end. Um, Andrew, should we be afraid? Is this is a new vector? Is this an evolution of what has become a business or is it just kind of more the same and we can still do the mitigation kind of things that we do? Should we be worried? I mean, we, we should always be very, very, very afraid, right? Kind of yeah. thing. Or, or, you know, let's go back to classic Pogo. We have met the enemy and he is us because it's all, all our right. responsibility to do that yeah, stuff. Yeah. And it's all hard. Right. So, uh, okay. so a couple of thoughts. I, I, the big game hunting is always a, it's a little bit evocative from a visualization standpoint kind of thing, right? But it, it feels like actually it's a combination and acceleration of trends that have been happening for a while. We go back to the Sony attack, which was about exfiltration of data years ago. I always like to be careful about mentioning folks, but that was in the news enough. I'm not going after them by saying that then there started to seem to be more of a shift toward you know we are going to uh, deal with data gravity issues by locking your data in place without having to move it we'll charge you a ransom for it but that doesn't mean that the other monetization stream exfiltrating your data 
saying that, you know, if you don't pay by a certain time, we're going to start exposing it has gone away. So it feels like a combination of the maturing of the industry, multiple monetization paths, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there was there was one other thing I, I wanted to put in there. This is now riffing off the topic a little bit, if that if that's all right, Rob. There's there's mention in this article toward the top of uh, of Colonial Pipeline and of um and of uh, Kaseya. You know, there's been stuff there, and of course, Solar Winds from a supply chain standpoint. You know, attacking the supply chain. There was one very interesting lesson out of that, and I'm going to leave out who the company was, but you can find this information publicly. So I'm not disclosing stuff that I know via back channels. Noticeably named company got hit. Within about three hours, they paid the ransom. Why? Well, they started restoring, realized what their restore time was going to be. It actually wasn't bad. Kudos to them for being prepared in various ways. It was going to be several days. They then looked at it and said, well, we need to pay the ransom because several days will mean that we will be in the news and it will be nationally impacting as it was. They got the decryption tool. They found the speed of decryption, which let's think about this logically. Decryption speeds. If you're an attacker, you're going to optimize the encryption tool, not the decryption tool. And even if it's really optimized, you're bounded by the CPU on the, you know, the system that's running the decryption tool by the underlying storage. So they bought the decryption tool and then ended up the mass majority of their stuff doing restoring from backup anyway. Because even if you decrypt it, can you trust that? Do you have to still validate the data anyway? We're just thinking about, you know, what's the operational process of restoring? So I, I was on a call earlier this week actually with um, one one customer where there was some discussion about, you know, even having, you know, funded Bitcoin wallets and some of those pieces. I'm totally leaving out names here. But that may be sometimes at a board or executive level, like me, like, you know, we don't want to do that, but we know that we might have to. You can make a strong case that even if you choose to pay the ransom, you may still be as stuck as you were without paying the ransom, even if the attackers are honest and follow through with what they promised you in exchange for the ransom. Yeah, or even take longer to to your point. You know, and you and I were chatting about this just just yesterday, right? Is that decryption tool, as you said, is not optimized. And so instead of looking at your normal, you know, backup, whatever that is in 48 hours and recovery, you're now looking at still the week that, you know, you're basically still out. Um, Kyle, what's, what, what do you see around this? I know this is more Andrew's bailiwick, but I know you got thoughts in this space too. I do. I do. So ransomware, I, I've coined a new term and it's called extortionware as well, because at, at some level they, you know, if you do have the, Andrew, to your example, if you have the protections and the recovery capability and you can, you know, Hey, I'm not paying and I'm going to recover with the means and technology I have within my, within my enterprise, my technology stack. Great. But with the process of exfiltration of data, there's the threat of it being leaked. If that's sensitive, if that's intellectual property, if that's competitive, if that insert anything that someone, you know, wants to keep within their proprietary, you know, the, the confines of their, of their private, you know, private network and, and private information stack. So um, we, we continue to see that more and more. I don't know if you guys saw. So last week was black hat. It's the yep. one conference I've never been to. And I always say, I want to go. And, you know, one of the things that was, was happening, you know, uh, the U S department of state were, were there and you can kind of, it's starting to kind of get around a little bit, but hashtag rewards, not ransoms. And they're literally, you know, offering up $10 million for information on malicious cyber activities, which I think is pretty cool. Um, but also recognizing that this isn't going to stop. It's going to be, you know, we all need to figure out how to protect and share information. How do we combat this, this global problem? And it's, you know, it's got the attention of 
obviously governments and mm-hmm. and it's going to continue to keep scaling and and I and I share this with a lot of different customers there are those that have been attacked and I fully believe there are those that will be there there it's on a different pendulum it's like a motorcycle racer those that have ra- have crashed and those that will crash it's really just about you know how quickly can you recover is what kind of protections and mechanisms do you have at your disposal so that's my first high level but a lot of interesting things as it relates to the topic coming out of black hat last week well, and like the motorcycle riders, we're interested in helping companies out there wear the full leathers because, uh, you know, <laughs> you got the full leather, then you wipe out. You've got five seconds before the uh, ground scrapes through everything versus if you're wearing jeans or heaven forbid, when I went through my motorcycle training, you were wearing nylon, which melts into your skin. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a horrific thought. And that does that in less than a second. So let's uh, let's get those companies out there full leathers. And one thing that I will plug that uh, that our marketing team pushed out recently that you may want to check out with pure storage is something called the hacker's guide to ransomware mitigation recovery. We've been working really closely with a uh, red hat hacker out there or a white hat. I don't know. He interchangeably uses the terms, but either way, and it's, it's uh, 15 to 17 pages in an ebook all about, um, you know, mitigation techniques and, and basically his thoughts on what is going on, what steps you should take for that are preventative. And I don't know, Andrew's trifecta, right. Of, uh, of, of ransomware, which if you've listened to him in his talk track is fantastical. So go and check that out. And, uh, you know, thanks to ZD net for the article that we're referring to there. Uh, on the one-two punch extortion and ransomware attacks. And I guess I, I can kind of segue into the third thing I wanted you guys to discuss. And again, it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't talk about cloud, but um, I, I found an interesting one around hybrid cloud related to the e-commerce boom, right? And knowing that we're in this in this pandemic and, and with COVID still kind of out there, some research and some studies that were done around e-commerce companies and the ones that pivoted really quickly to, you know, to, to digital business, but more so how they leverage hybrid cloud services to um, power the transition that they needed to do to get into, into digital and make them more nimble and more agile and kind of the ones that didn't do that being somewhat left behind. Kyle, I'll go to you. Do you, do you touch? Do you, do you work with any of the any of the retail folks kind of out there? And and if not, still, what's what's analogous about the pivot that everybody was focused to do? You know, eighteen months ago to really move everything and shift online, whether it be, you know, VDI to to set up desktops for people at home, or just to be able to bring new services online. And hybrid cloud's kind of been a thing that's been going for five or ten years anyway. But um, what's the lay of the land as far as you see it? Well, I would say this. So I do have some direct experience in the last 18 months uh, and it, it's not relevant or specific to pure primarily, but one of the largest, um, one of my favorite food uh, providers in the, I would say rapid food preparation, I won't call it fast food, right. but in the rapid food preparation space, once the, you know, once everything hit, you know, at the beginning or whatever, middle of, of spring last year, and, and everything locked down. This was an, this was you know an organization that was brick and mortar, drive throughs, and in person, and dealing with all of that. Uh, I think at the time when we were working with their technology team, and they were in a you know essentially in a hybrid cloud space, we were working through and helping them move primarily a, a good portion of those transactional systems into uh, into into cloud providers so they could grow and scale. And they used to do about 20% on their online app. And then that very quickly, within about three months, ramped to about 90, 97%, right? And so that's huge. We've also got some great examples coming out of Accelerate. Andrew did several sessions throughout the week. And I heard you guys talk about some, some interesting sessions on one of the prior peer podcasts as well, which is, or the peer reports, 
um, was Roblox and in their scale and their demand and what they saw literally overnight, they couldn't have done that without some of the technologies at play and, and, and scaling in that, in that, in that cloud world. So um, for sure, I think the last year has really called the bluff on a lot of technology companies that maybe or companies that weren't ready or prepared or didn't have that application architecture. And Andrew and I, I think are seeing a very big uptick in, in these conversations on strategy. What can we help with? Um, are there some really great capabilities with things like Portworx where we could, you know, maybe help those customers get there and, and scale their environments and, and do things in a, in a pretty cool way. So Andrew, I know you've got a thought there too. Maybe one maybe. or two or three, maybe, maybe one or two. Well, but I, I think, you know, in our time, we, you know, we've gone into and retail has not always been characterized by, you know, bleeding edge and, and, and Peter Eicher, you know, they tend to be more conservative and, and Peter Eicher on, on our team, you know, looks at some of the emerging verticals and has done some things around, you know, retail, which we can, you know, argue whether retail is e-commerce and, and, you know, they're, they're, they're different, but they're cousins, they're related, but having gone and traveled to some of the, you know, old school retailers, and I won't name names going into some of those buildings and then going into their IT shops and seeing what they have, it's almost an afterthought, right? And it's, it, it's been messy. And I think what this did was really force these retailers to kind of take a look at how they do things. But um, I'm interested, Andrew, maybe if you have some insights, we know not every application always fits well in, in, a, in a public cloud scenario. There are things that do, and there are different data types as well. And there's certain things that, that go on-prem, but what does the mixture of hybrid cloud then allow retailers to, to do better? Is it just bringing out new services, you know, being more nimble, doing more offers or the kinds of things that, you know, that Kyle just mentioned where, you know, certain things were done online via an app, um, you know, what is that? The answer is yes to all of those. <laughs> I, I, oh, I think I'm supposed to not stop there. So if we keep going a little further, th yes there and. is definitely. Yes and is good improv. Come on. <laughs> there is definitely acceleration of new offers. So I was thinking through even the pieces you were saying, Kyle, it can be. This, the first thing it made me think of is, you know, the idea that you're crazy not to start in the cloud. But you're also crazy to keep the same architecture when you have amazing, amazing growth and scaling kind of thing. There was some discussion. I want to say it was from uh, maybe it was Wikibon. I'm not trying to miscredit the analyst here, you know, kind of thing of the idea of analyzing some of cloud costs over time. That even leads into a trend that we saw with Pure. And as we developed out Pure One, you know, the right decision was to start it in certain ways. You get to certain scale points, you better have planned for that and change it. Sometimes that even goes to analytics pieces. You want to start with data warehousing or analytics. If you can't start it fast enough, you don't even get it off the ground. Yeah. But then the problems that you want to have, you need to be ready for them a little bit or looking forward. So then the cost structures and the flexibility structures don't stop you from growing. The other thing I think of there is what is the definition of hybrid cloud? That can vary sometimes whether when we're having an infrastructure conversations, that might be hybrid in that we have multiple cloud providers, we have on-prem, we have partnerships with various colo providers, et cetera, or it can be sometimes hybrid all the way up at app application level. You know, the application is actually addressing different things. That, that ends up leading to very different conversations as far as the components, but preferring to start sometimes that more with, you know, is this more a traditional application? Does that traditional application need to live on prem or in the cloud due to you know sovereignty reasons, um, or or even is it a starting as a next generation application? There are pieces there that map to some of pure strategy, but that's not where we want to start. The right place to start there is architecturally. The last thing I think of, well, actually two last things, but you 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 mentioned one, Kyle, Roblox. They had a full year growth in one week. That blows my mind from having spent mm -hmm. seven years in IT operations. It's like, ooh, like, how do you plan? How do you plan for that? Even plan to plan for that kind of thing. 
last but not least, I want to give credit to Alex McMullen, uh, field CTO here at Pure, or, or primary field CTO here at Pure. There's a field CTO team. And, and he called out something when he and I were chatting recently around kind of Pure's design ethos. So a little bit of a Pure ad, but still kind of architecture is looking at cloud as an operating model and not a destination. Right. And that we should be thinking about as data center architects, regardless of the products underneath, how do we enable that operating model regardless of the destination? Bingo. And I think on the Roblox thing, just to take you back, this is machine, this is machine managed scalability, not human managed scalability, because you can't do that type of growth. And you're, you know, in your point there, Andrew, uh, as a human pushing the button, right? You can only do so much. So, you know, I think that changes the architecture in the scale conversation quite a bit too. Yeah, but it seems to be all around scale, right? I mean, and just kind of sifting through this article, that they bring up different types of entities and and things that were impacted, right? You mentioned the Roblox example, but they talk about you know bicycle companies. I mean, my kid's going back to high school right now, and he's grown, I don't know, nine inches in the last you know year and a half. So he's a monster, and his old bike doesn't fit. And I'm trying to find a bike for him. And there's none. Everything is is special order. Like everybody's just gone out and bought bicycles in the last. 16 or 17 months. And, and that's the new hobby, right? Just because we needed something to, to do to get outside. And so, yeah, it's a scale thing. Kyle. You, Rob, you, one, one last thought for me, yeah. um, uh, just to, to, you know, go back to Andrew's point for just a second uh, around the pure example, right? Mm -hmm. We had an infrastructure stack that was cloud native and sometimes things, processes, products, capabilities that you might deliver back to your customers change the tolerance for a lot of different things could be cost profiles, could be, you know, the methods and could be, you know, whatever it may be in the technology stack. But what we wanted to do was bring a new idea to our customers and that changed the access patterns of a, of a model that we felt very comfortable with and a, and a cost conscious mindset. But as we started to look at these new capabilities around analytics and some of the changes in data access and behavior that immediately changed the cost profile and we needed to come up with a different way. So it's not even to Andrew's point, it, it cloud is an operating model. It's not a binary operating model. It's not that this is the road I've, I've chosen and I'm going to stay here because we do know the truth will change in the future. And sometimes that's going to change the architecture. So I really harp, not harp, but I really focus on that opportunity to be flexible and it can be, Hey, I want to change the truth in the future. And I think Nirvana is we can come up with what that looks like and it can run anywhere. And that's really what everyone would love to get to. It's just how do we do it? And, and in our world, we took a cloud native app and we refactored it to open standards and Kubernetes and containers. And, you know, and that helped us with our challenge. And I think that changes the thought process for us on how we deliver some of these backend systems to deliver those technologies to customers. Yeah. Great, great additional um, point in there, Andrew. Is that, that's some of the lessons learned that we saw and share with folks around Pure One. It is a yeah. massive hybrid application. We've learned some lessons where some of our design center would have been different five years ago if we knew then what we know now or seven years ago as we were creating it kind of thing. Um, so it is a definitely, we are all students. We are all learning both at individual levels and frankly at corporate levels too. And that's times where we can have more fun conversations with folks than, hey, we're here with storage and that thing, that stuff. But like, here's what we've learned and doing some of the things you're trying to do. And yes, of course we work for companies, but we can share some of that stuff. Well, and I, I think we've done that in, in the last couple of years. I mean, you know, it was a couple of years ago when I had Farhan from the Pure One team on and we were talking through his direct learnings around what we did. You know, we're getting all this telemetry data from all the arrays that are in the field. Okay, great. What do you do with that then? And he's like, well, we're going to run some AI against it. Okay. 
how do you go and do that? And, and I think the gist of our conversation that we then shared with a lot of the folks who were like, Hey, how do I get into AI and how do I do ML is start small, right? Pick a, pick a couple, pick a couple few things that you can go execute and learn on. And, and, and that was his great insight. And of course we've expanded it from there and to your points, Andrew, about pure one in general, but um, those are things that we shared, you know, don't, don't jump into, to the AI uh, pool, all at one time, you know, pick a few things and then, and then kind of uh, figure out what you can do from there. Um, great insights, gents. Uh, love hearing what you have to say because you engage around these things. And it dovetails if we're just talking about cloud experience in general, I guess we'll close the episode with a little bit of pure news. We're going to talk a little bit about some, some orangey things that are there. But, uh, you know, one of you just said, you know, it's, it's really about the right tool for the right job and, and, and the flexibility or the agility in the cloud experience. And we're really excited to, you know, with our important partner, Cisco, uh, to announce that we're extending Pure as a Service into the Flash Stack architecture, uh, which already has really, really great hybrid cloud types of components. And again, it's an on-prem thing, but the connectivity that both companies allow enable those types of things. Kyle, what, what did you think when you saw the announcement? Pretty excited, good extension of, of what we're doing with PaaS? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something we've all been asking for as soon as we got with PaaS. The next question we all said is, when can we do it with FlashStack and the partnership okay. with Cisco? Uh, yeah. It's it's really that, you know, in my humble opinion, PaaS has been, while it is essentially a consumption model, right? It's, it's much like cloud, to Andrew's point. Cloud is not a place you are. It's a it's an operating model and it's a consumption model. Um, we really, when, when PaaS became a thing or Pure as a Service became a thing, it really put a spotlight on the architectural choices that engineering built. And there's a whole list of 15 of really core tenants of, of why we built things the way we did, but the architecture allows us to flex this up and flex it down. And so that gives us a lot of unique capabilities. Years and years ago in Project California, when it was a Cisco code name before UCS became a thing, you had this cool capability of a stateless compute platform. And, you know, a lot of customers who moved into that stateless compute platform, and Andrew's done a lot of this in his history prior to Pure, you know, one of the ways I would get customers to understand the value of Pure in the early days, if they were Cisco UCS, was it's very similar in nature, right? And so now it just seemed way back in the day, like just the perfect marriage of two great architectures that you could literally live in a as-a-service model. Let's, let's, let's get you consumption-based modeling, and then we've seen things just evolve with Cisco and they've brought a lot of enhancements um, with some of their capabilities and things that look a little like pure one and, and some of their metering and, and capabilities as well. So, you know, super excited to see it. Something I've been hoping for for quite some time. I can't wait to uh, to get my first customer on it. Yeah, and Andrew, you're, Andrew, you're super close to uh, Flash Stacks. One of your hobbies, right, is, is chatting in and all around it. And your cool narrative with the day zero, day one, day two kind of thing that we've done on, on prior pods. So if you're out there listening, go go check out a couple of those, do a little search on the Peer Report and Flash Stack and Andrew Miller, and you can get kind of the gist of it. But, uh, you know, what 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 jumped out at you uh, when, we, when we announced this and brought this up? There's this piece of you want to have big, crazy announcements that are amazing and make everyone be like, "Ooh, wow!" <laughs> then there's also the sense of if you do that, go too far. Someone kind of looks and is like, "Wait a minute! They they couldn't have created something that amazing that fast. It's just not possible." So, what I like about FlashStack and now going into the as a service model is foundationally what Kyle mentioned. It's this yeah. shared stateless foundation. Now, sometimes I try and put my head, am I talking more at a business executive level, at a technical level? So sometimes, my background, right? I'll start at the technical level. That shared statelessness 
business is the foundation at a pure level and a Cisco level. It makes the flexibility possible. That's the business outcome. And we just keep layering stuff on top of that better foundation than frankly, a lot of the other, you know, alternative stacks to flash stack uh, can do. When, when I, when, if we take that even further, you know, we, so we've talked about Intersight in the past, you know, that layers on top from a management simplification and there's both stuff there and there's more stuff coming, but we've had this very cool technical flexibility. We've been adding management flexibility. Why wouldn't you add financial flexibility? It's very logical. And if you have a, pl a platform that can be scaled up and down more straightforwardly than other ones, you can do different things with that financial flexibility than you can with some of the other stacks. And so that's where often what I'm starting with folks talking about this, if I do start at the simplicity, flexibility, it's everything like, well, that kind of sounds all the same as what everyone else is promising. And then you go into like, well, let's have some fun with actually what the underpinnings are. Not in a way that like hopefully bores people and puts them to sleep, but there's different underpinnings there that actually uniquely enable the value proposition of Flashdack and talking as a service model. Partners are still critical here. I think the last thought is that um, we were doing a webinar actually earlier this week is a couple, little bit of data protection and Flashdack and even um, uh, Cisco, B-Series, C-Series, and X, you know, they've, they've continued to expand the UCS product line. Uh, and Carlo, my peer from uh, Italy, was saying, you know, he ended with a, a love letter to dear CIOs. This can make you more flexible. And, and it just, and, and I can't, I won't even try and do his accent because it's like amazingly wonderful for American. But it's almost this, this idea of this is a love letter to people that are mired in infrastructure to make their life better and be more responsive to the business and not be stuck doing the things that the business doesn't see a value, but give them the ability to do more of what the business cares about. Yeah. Wrenching and, and plugging in cables and doing things, not much value add, but, you know, looking ahead strategically and anticipating needs and evaluating data that you're capturing far more strategic, far more interesting. And if you do want to check out that webcast, you can find it, just do a quick search on supercharger infrastructure and big capital and your balance sheet. And that actually ran on August 12th, if that helps you. Um, really, really cool stuff with multiple speakers. Great to hear from. And of course, Carlo's wonderful accent as a uh, as a European there. Hey, as Jen, Americans, we're suckers for, we're suckers know, for your accent. So, yeah, what, that's accent, how it works. accent what accent do we have? Although I was told I have a California accent. I don't know what that is, but you know, something like that. Rob, last, last big idea. Last yeah, yeah. big idea, right? So before this announcement, when it was just pure as a service, you know, I would tell you, um, you and I recently did the observations conversation, um, you know, just on a lot of things that have changed in the last 18 months. You know, I have this thing that I've been thinking about, you know, period, you know, over and over and over again, this, this enterprise flywheel, the bigger accounts and I say and global accounts and the largest accounts, you know, pure as a service is something that is changing people's um jumping point. So let's say an example, a very large organization doesn't have pure technology today. They've been, you know, in a partnership for 20 years, 15 years with, you know, various uh, different providers in the space. I've personally been in briefings uh, in just in the last month and a half where we're educating some of the executives. And when they get to the conversation around PaaS and they fully understand what we're doing with as a service and truly metering that, and they're only paying for what they're consuming, not what they're provisioning to the hosts. And they understand that. I had a senior level executive say, I have an 82 petabyte environment today based on what you guys just went through on this as a service model. You, you are in position to take over my entire landscape. And the reason I bring that up is early days at Pure, we would find that one or two use case, smaller use cases, maybe a oh, we had yeah. to, you know, and we'd earn that right and that success. 
And this, this model is getting the attention of the executives and they understand it. And then they're talking to their peer groups and then they're talking to Gartner and others. And they're starting to see that NPS and that net promoter score. And so it's really lighting a fire on the enterprise flywheel that I continue to see in more and more accounts. And we're seeing very large, large transactions with some of these new customers and they're doing it as a service. It's a home run. It's great. So I can't wait to see the upside with, with flashback as a service. Yeah, it, it's just another arrow in the quiver, which, which is a great thing, but will help people consume with whatever they want to go off and deploy. And it doesn't matter the use case. And to your point, Kyle, more holistically, let, let us just take care of your whole data real estate, right? It's, it's not, we're going to, you know, pick off your Oracle database or, you know, look at this certain analytics workload, this Splunk thing that you're doing for log analytics or security analytics or whatever. It's like you have a whole data real estate. You know, let's talk about how we can, uh, you know, Uberize that for for lack of a better term, right? To uh, to just you know make it entire as a service thing. Um, thanks for adding that in, Andrew. Final thoughts. I'll pick one. I was thinking about this earlier, but I realize it's a micro thought that I think I, we can have a macro discussion about too. So it's a good closing thought. Of um, I was having a discussion actually. It was earlier this week around some comparative competitive things to what we do from a ransomware architecture standpoint, and the differences came down to majorly simpler approach. Mm -hmm. uh, dramatically faster from a recovery standpoint, much less cost and continuing op operational cost, both financial cost and operational cost. However, as I was thinking about what you were just saying, Kyle, that actually, I was like, well, that was kind of, I was going to do some ransomware commentary on that earlier. And then we kept going and I left it out. But that actually feels like what we're talking about here too. We're talking about preserving the simplicity Pure has been known for. That kind of leads into flexibility. We're not running away from speed at all, whether it's performance speed or operational speed. And the cost dynamics, while there's still cost here, there's an interesting uh, array of flexibility from a cost standpoint they're now introducing in. So I'll leave you with simplicity, speed, and cost, however you want to apply it. I like it. It works across the board. Well, gents, we did it. We uh, took on a new format. And I hope if you're uh, still listening out there, which I hope you are, uh, that you enjoyed us kind of hashing through the latest news. Uh, if, if you like this format, send in some feedback and we'll keep it going, but it's always fun to get some interesting guys on. Uh, Kyle and Andrew, let's do it again soon. All right. Sounds great. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Guys, always yeah. great to have both of you and always great to have you out there listening to the Pure Report. Send in your feedback, tell a colleague, tell a friend, and we'll keep the great guests like Kyle and Andrew joining the program. And with that, we will wrap for Pure Storage, Kyle Keller. And Andrew Miller, this is Rob Ludeman saying, don't look back, something might be gaining on you.